Good morning. I want to express uh, my gratitude for the invitation to share with you today. Uh, surprisingly wonderful to be back in the Holy City. Uh, you do still call it the Holy City, right? Okay. Um, after 34 years sojourning in the world, I want to thank you especially for your hospitality. I had a wonderful dinner last night with your Christian education faculty, marred only by the fact that one of them tried to talk me into ordering an entree called Coach Calipari's Chicken. <laughs> I simply couldn't do it. There's something about the notion of one and done that kept coming to mind. <laughs> it's a great joy and privilege uh, to be back at Asbury Seminary with you today. One of my first memories from around the age of three is of peeking through a rusty screen door onto a tree-lined gravel driveway. In my memory, the late afternoon breeze gently stirs the autumn leaves in the golden light of the setting sun. The path of translucent stone chippings set aflame by the substrate of red Mississippi clay snakes from the steps below my naked feet to the widening horizon. But this is not only my first conscious memory at the age of three, but also my first memory of astounding beauty. Something about this scene set it, set it apart from my ordinary experience. Something drew my attention almost against my will. I couldn't look away. With my whole being, I wanted then to know this driveway these trees and this world, to drink them in or to be drunk by them. I was enveloped by what I now know to be wonder, an intuition of mystery, a sense that an excess of shimmering goodness lies beneath the ordinary of life, disclosing a deep truth that orders the world. Of course, I could not have then articulated any of this, and even now, words are wholly inadequate to capture that moment or the many others like it. My Mississippi childhood was filled with such moments of being caught by beauty, of dust motes dancing in sunbeams, of languid lakes and rippling streams, of noble black dogs, cooing doves, chirping crickets, of my mother's red ruby lipstick and my father's beard stubble tickling my face. As I grew a bit older, Beauty revealed itself in the soulful twang of my uncle's country singing, my church's a cappella harmonies, in the lustrous paintings of my art teacher, Mr. Quinn, and in the adorable girl in my junior high class. But perhaps most of all, in a well-thrown curveball. Eventually, I came to know such wonder and beauty in the faces of children, nurturing mothers, the selfless work of teachers, and in acts of justice, but most of all, in the story of God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ. In fact, so compelling were my childhood epiphanies that I committed no little energy from an early age trying to create beauty by painting, by playing uh, the guitar. Unfortunately for me, and maybe for you, somewhere along the way, someone warned me or maybe I breathed in the air of hard-bitten Southern pragmatism, that to be preoccupied with beauty is self-indulgent, while seeking truth and goodness is virtuous, practical, and respectable. I was smart enough, they said, to make a living using my mind, 
I had a responsibility, they said, to make the world a better place. Indeed, they said, the gospel of Jesus Christ commands it. Although I have spent the better part of my adult life following these blessed paths of truth and goodness, I've long suspected that this bipartite canon was incomplete. Now, late in my midlife, midlife or later, I returned to these questions of my childhood once braided in wonder to reconsider the question of beauty for the church and for my discipline of Christian education. Christian education, as you probably know, especially in the modern period, has largely involved gaining facility with ideas or empowering students to act more responsibly, that is, with doctrines or duties. Most often, uh, evangelicals um, em embrace um, the emphasis of true doctrine and liberals embrace morality or justice. With a few notable exceptions, religious educators have not really known what to do with the third transcendental beauty. The crux of my argument today, will, which by necessity remain only suggestive, is that we would do well to reclaim beauty as a root paradigm for the church's ministries, especially for the ministry of education and formation. Before turning to, uh, to focus on pedagogical questions, it will be helpful for us to know something about the nature of beauty as a way of knowing that provides clues for education and formation. Beauty has long been an honored way of knowing. Throughout history, people of all sorts across all cultures have recognized the epiphany of beauty as unique among the ways of encountering the world. Navajo tribes uh, once used uh, beautiful sand paintings to bring the sick back into harmony with the universe. Uh, physicists and mathematicians claim sometimes to be led by elegance to the truth about the world. Albert Einstein once remarked, I have deep faith that the principle of the universe will be beautiful and simple. Early Greek philosophers identified beauty as one of the three transcendental perfections of being, of which being partakes, and early church fathers knew uh, these transcendentals as the qualities of God, the perfections of God. Beauty, it seems, is not mere decoration as we have come to think of it in our modern era, but beauty holds a certain ethical significance. In other words, it conditions how we respond to others and the world. Harvard aestheticist Elaine Scarry observes that when we encounter beauty, we experience a surplus of aliveness a wake-up call to the plenitude of life. Beauty quickens, she says. It adrenalizes. It makes the heart beat faster. It makes life more vivid, animated, living, and worth living. There is an overwhelming givenness in the beautiful, and it is discovered in astonishment, in an awareness of something fortuitous, adventitious, essentially indescribable. It is known only in the moment of response from the position of one already addressed and only now able to reply. Beauty is not a product of disinterested contemplation, as Kant supposed. It evokes desire for the other. According to Skari, beauty establishes a contract or a covenant between the perceiver and the uh, beautiful object, compelling the perceiver to attend carefully 
and to protect the aliveness of the beautiful object. Additionally, the beautiful object fosters attachment that is also detachment, for it can only be received at a distance by letting be as a gift. It can consecrates otherness as good. Once beauty is coerced or exploited for selfish purposes, its quality can only be diminished. As Christians, we might say that beauty is the delighted vision of what is other than oneself, of difference created by God who differentiates, pleasing in the eyes of the God who takes pleasure. Thus, there is an aesthetic moment of wakefulness to the ethical wherein one is moved to cherish and respond to others, and which Christian thought can grasp in light of God's own imminent and economic trinity. Beauty is a palpable reminder that the world cannot be reduced to mere efficient causality, but that all things participate in a mystery that cannot be rationally deduced, that all things exist within an invisible nimbus of gratuity. In the words of Christian contemplative Simone Weil, beauty requires us to give up our imaginary position at the center of the world. A transformation takes place at the very roots of our sensibility in our immediate reception of sense impressions and psychological impressions. In the moment we perceive beauty, we are absorbed into the world, joining the community of beauty. We are recruited by it, beyond ourselves, into solidarity with it. British novelist Irish, Iris Murdoch tells of a day when she was on her back um, porch and she was anxious and resentful and brooding and preoccupied with her problem. But upon looking in the sky, she saw a beautiful kestrel flying above and all of her problems fell away. The space formerly given in the service of protecting and guarding and advancing her ego now becomes free in the service of something else. Not only does beauty invite us into covenant with itself, but it makes us want to share it with others, with friends and even strangers, thus emulating beauty's own centrifugal dynamic by extending our gracious invitation to others. For example, you will recall that art galleries and museums are filled with people who come to experience beauty. Indeed, one of the most common responses to beauty, according to museum gift shop, is uh, a postcard or a phone call to say, the impressionists are breathtaking. I wish you were here. Come as soon as you can. Beauty evokes in us a desire for community, or as Christians, we might say, for Eucharistic ecclesia. Beauty also prompts an imitative impulse. The philosopher Wittgenstein says that when the eye sees something beautiful, the hand wants to draw it. Beauty brings copies of itself into being. It makes us want to reproduce, to take photographs of it, or to describe it to other people. We also see this in art galleries as students fill pads of newsprint with their sketches. Sometimes the imitative impulse of beauty crosses sensory modes, such as when the smooth cheek of a child prompts a caress, 
or inspires us to play with them or care for them. This crisscrossing of senses prompted Augustine to think of God when he touches something beautiful or pleasant, or prompted Dante to be inspired by the beautiful Beatrice, uh, prompted him to write sonnets of the landscape of God's salvation, in which the beauty of God finally inhabits all of creation. Hence, beauty is not, as Kierkegaard supposed, a bourgeois affection that circles in upon itself. But instead, beauty drives toward, towards fulfilling the world with its qualities. Childhood developmental theorists believe that before the age of three, before the onset of language, young children perceive all stimuli cross-modally or synesthetically. Daniel Stern observes that child-directed speech of a parent to their infant involves not simple words, but rounded, alternating high to low pitch, affect-laden speech. You know, when a mother coos with her child, hello, baby, right? Such, a, such sing-song words offers a verbal and affective embrace that at once invites the infant's attention and draws it near. At a recent Stanford, uh, Stanford study, researchers ran an endless loop in a special screening room of a recording of a Chinese mother, a Chinese mothers cooing with their infants. They were surprised, however, to find uh, that stressed out graduate students often came just to sit in the room and listen. To comfort themselves from the stressors of graduate school. Aesthetics seems to be a universal language that crosses cultural linguistic boundaries. The mother's beautiful cooing, even in an un unknown Chinese dialect, tra traversed fields, crossed modes, affects moods and behaviors, not only of infants but those stressed out graduate students in an entirely different culture. Beauty is our first and deepest language. In his book, Only a Promise of Happiness, Alexander Nehemoth concludes that beauty manifests a hope that life would be better if the object of beauty were part of it. From an explicitly Christian perspective, David Bentley Hart states that beauty seems to promise a reconciliation beyond the contradictions of the moment, one that perhaps places time's tragedies within a broader perspective of harmony and meaning, a balance between light and darkness. Beauty seems to absolve being of its violences. Unlike reason, which is subject to endless charges of subjective bias, beauty is surprisingly objective. It possesses a phenomenal priority. We may quibble about how to interpret beauty, but we rarely doubt its existence or its quality. There's actually, it turns out, more agreement about what is beautiful than what is true. Beauty is ubiquitous. It appears on the vastest scales, as the amazing photographs taken by the Hubble telescope uh, of our uh, beautiful blue orb show and on the most minute as floating dust motes in a sunbeam or 
for example, the Fibonacci pattern in the head uh, of a sunflower seed. While beauty certainly plays some role in natural selection, it is not reducible to this purpose. According to Dutch biologist F.J. Boitendijk, it, uh, to put it simply, he says, the birds are singing much more beautifully than Darwin permits. Far more than for the purpose of natural selection alone. Despite the abundance of aesthetic explanations for evolution, of process and development driven by survival, the excess of beauty woven into the fabric of creation points to Trinitarian perichoresis, the beautiful dance of the Godhead, and to the world's eschatological culmination in which all proximate reasons will pass away, survived only by the playful impulse to enjoy God's beauty and to make it manifest throughout all creation. Beauty traverses the boundaries that divide ideal from real, transcendent from imminent, supernatural from natural, pleasing from profound, and nature from grace. For Christian thought, beauty's indifference should indicate the continuity uh, between the divine and created glory. Neither in the Bible nor in patristic theology is God's goodness, truth, or lordship distinguished from God's glory, savor, or awesome holiness. That God is good may be seen and tasted. And this means that a theology of beauty should express itself at times as an ontology, an epistemology, or an ethics. Beauty's authority is manifestly a public announcement, not a Gnostic secret opposed to the private illumination of pneumaticos and the sad remoteness of the call that issues from some alien god is creation's open and overwhelming declaration of God's glory. The beauty that fills and upholds heaven and earth, the divine goodness that expresses itself in light, flesh, and form. Beauty proclaims God's glory and creation's goodness with equal eloquence and truthfulness in each moment, in each interval within being. Consequently, the Christian story of salvation cannot be partitioned off into the hidden depths of introspection or contemplation, but it interacts with the world. The weight of theology does not rest upon a transcendental interiority or a Gnosticism that extracts a purely spiritual or unutterable wisdom, annihilating all aesthetic continuity between God and creation. Theology should take its lead from the particularity of form and the splendor of created things. Nothing else impresses upon us uh, our attention with at once so wonderful a power and evocative an immediacy. Beauty is there abroad in the order of things, given again and again and again in a way that defies description and denial with equal impertinence. This beauty is a category indispensable for Christian thought. Beauty played a key role in theology well into the medieval period where it underwent a decline as modernity uh, came to focus upon the capacity of human thought to become, in Descartes' words, 
the master and possessors of nature. Beauty came to be quarantined by the modern mind, grown impatient with mystery. And we, we uh, see this, for example, with some of the same attitude in the new atheists who announce that, in, in other words, that they have simply stopped looking for mystery because science has solved all questions. Philosopher Charles Taylor and theologian John Milbank, among others, have observed that we live in a world that has grown disenchanted, flattened to its economic or scientific utility, devoid of transcendence. Nature is flattened from God's creation to mere raw materials. Relationships are flattened from sacraments into pure pragmatic arrangements. Other people are flattened from bearers of God's own, in, own image to competitors and barriers of our own self-seeking. Even our theology becomes flattened into ideology or moralism. It is no secret that we are hungry for the imaginative fantasy of, say, Harry Potter, C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, or J.R.R. Tolkien. On some deep level, we have this abiding suspicion that everything really is enchanted, that the ordinary things around us really are not ordinary at all, but are part of a holy drama in which children and lepers are welcome. Bread and wine are the body and blood of Christ, and tombs are emptied. Moreover, we find ourselves in this postmodern era uh, in which rhetoric has seemed to triumph over dialectic, over argument. Postmodernism's denial that there is an overarching dialectic by which a single and rationally ascertainable truth might be set above all merely contingent truths, this is not a problem for Christian theology, which does not permit a simple abstraction from the story of the gospel to universal principles. It remains in the realm of the particular, the realm of beauty. The Christ event, with all of its messy concreteness, remains eternally the fount to which we return again and again to taste its beauty, but which will always elude the finality of our words and our moral principles. Christianity, it seems, is much better suited to manifest the virtues of beauty than the abstractions of truth or goodness. Theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar analogizes the structures governing beautiful forms on one hand and God's self-revelation on the other. Unlike cognitive mastery of ideas or concepts, when we behold beauty, we are enraptured by our contemplation of its splendorous depths. Corresponding to beauty's gracious self-bestowal is, on the subjective side, an analogous act of self-surrender on the part of one who perceives it. For von Balthasar, the very apex and archetype of beauty in the world is God's revelation in Jesus Christ, who is the form of all forms, the measure of all measures, in him, God uses created being to fashion an image, an expression, an exegesis of God's own self. Jesus is, in uh, von Balthasar's words, God's art. God's beauty is beheld in all of its fullness on the cross of Christ, 
bathed in the light of resurrection, there preeminently did the faithful witness the plenitude of God's self-emptying love. God employs what Balthazar calls the double vessel of beautiful form and interpersonal love. Balthazar saw in the form of Christ proportion, balance, and harmony everywhere. In the relationship between him and the Father, the distance of humanity and the nearness of the Son, the relationship between servant and Lord, exaltation and humiliation, uh, relationship between promise and fulfillment, judgment and grace, master and disciple. Each of these taken alone seems irreconcilable, but in the Christ image, they are objectively harmonized in the eyes of faith. Von Balthasar insists that the concrete form of God's self-revelation in Jesus Christ has an irreproachable integrity that re resists reductive analysis without remainder. This form cannot, at least to the eyes of the Christian believer, be explained away. In recent years, theologians such as David Bentley Hart, John Milbank, Catherine Pickstock, Pickstock and James K.A. Smith, to name a few, have explored the wide-ranging implications for theological aesthetics. But, as I said, I'm a Christian educator with a view to how we nurture congregations as disciples of Jesus Christ. In the modern era, particularly in the last century, Christian education has taken its cues primarily from educational theory, which prioritizes cognition, which seems to presume an automatic leap from comprehension to application. While such reliance upon cognitive theory has served the church well in many respects, some of us are beginning to suspect and recognize its limitations. The modern fiction of the cool, clinically detached observer with a view to mastery of information risks being a strategy for avoiding our own conversion, enabling us to, uh, to comprehend but not to submit or serve. So what if educational theory and social science are not the best ways to envision the task of Christian education? But what if instead theology, which von Balthasar called the light and the fire that burns at the center of the world? What if theology is our first and primary resource? What, is the, what if the revelation of Jesus Christ, given in such explicit and embodied concreteness, best determines what form is suited as a means of catechesis? What if the medium is the message? What if the beauty of the Christ event, God's art, like Murdoch's flock of kestrels, compels us to surrender our preoccupation with ourselves? What if the beauty of the gospel provokes us to invite others, like patrons in an art museum, to come and see its beauty? What if the very beauty of the gospel invites us, like Plato's caress of the child's face, to replicate its beauty in our lives, in our relationships with others, with the powers and principalities? What if the Christ event, like the Chinese mothers cooing their infants, is a form of beauty that we return to again and again for comforting embrace? What if we are not called so much to comprehend God as to fill the world with God's beauty? What if Christian education's task is not so much to distribute Christian facts 
but instead to artistically render Christ's beauty in a way that invites wonder and evokes, evokes such things as imitation, gratitude, surrender, and community. May these questions rise like prayers before Thee, O God, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.